All right, well, good morning, everyone. I'm Taylor Petrie, and uh, I want to welcome you, especially if it's your first time here with us today in person, or if you're joining with us online, we want to welcome you to today's service. Uh, before we get in, I want to highlight a couple announcements that we have real quick about what's coming up on our church calendar here. Uh, April 11th through the 15th, uh, as we lead into Good Friday, we, uh, Corinne and her team have put on what's called Journey to the Cross. And so Monday through Friday, the 11th through the 15th of April, during normal business hours, the Cafe of Hope, in conference room D, which is if you come in the front doors right under the stairs, uh, Corinne and her team have essentially put together this experience for us all to walk through at your own leisure throughout that time. And what it is is there's different stations and there's a booklet and there's a time of reflection for us to take the journey to the cross, similar to uh, what Jesus did, what we, what we want to reflect on is his triumphant entry into Jerusalem and everything that led up to that moment on the cross. And so we are going to spend that week together uh, trying to think about what that really felt like and sit in that and really understand that the promise that was on the other side and how we need to know what the pain was like in order to understand the promise sometimes. And so uh, there will be an online format to that as well. So if you can't join us in person the week of the 11th uh, to do the Journey to the Cross, there will be something through our Life Online platform uh, that you'll be able to experience that as well. But again, we encourage you to come out. And that will lead us into uh, Good Friday, which is April 15th. We are going to have a Good Friday service here at 7 p.m. It'll just be one service. Uh, child care will be provided. It will be online, but... Uh, if you're online and you bring kids, uh, you've got to have child care at your own home uh, for that. We can't do in-home visits yet. So I just want to encourage you, though, to join us at 7 p.m. for Good Friday service. But what we do is a little unique, I say. Uh, but Good Friday, we don't just talk about all oh, the goodness of things. We, we try to sit and reflect on the idea that what really happened on the cross wasn't really understood until... Easter, and, and in that wait, in that time of suffering, in that time of sorrow, we want to try to kind of reflect on what that was like for the disciples, for the followers of Jesus. And so we'll spend our Good Friday doing that, and then gathering again on Easter Sunday for both services, and rejoicing what our Savior has done for us. So please uh, feel free to join us for those things. All right, so why am I up here today? We're talking about James, and you already knew that, but we're going to be doing James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12 today. So if you turn your Bibles to James uh, chapter 5, verses 7 through 12, the, type, the topic or the theme really to this is patience and suffering. Very simple theme. Only a handful of verses here we're going to go through today. But as we open up these verses, as we go through it, we're going to understand there's a lot more meaning to what James is just saying here. Right? He's a practical book. But there's a context in which he writes. A persecuted church. A new church. New believers. He, in fact... The beginning of James chapter 1, he writes to the 12 tribes in dispersion, meaning that those Jewish believers are no longer in Jerusalem anymore for a reason. There's things happening in the world, and he's giving this charge to us and to the Jewish believers at the time that, hey, have patience in your suffering, right? Easier said than done. But if you think about suffering, what the, the context of this message means, when you sit in suffering, it's not easy. To consider what's on the other side, is what gives us hope. But when you're in the middle of your suffering, we tend to not sit there and be like, wow, isn't God so good? Isn't he so great? Our response is typically, we grumble, we complain, we're challenged. We don't know what's on the other side, but we're trusting in God and James is gonna bring this out. And if you think about whatever you're suffering, whatever the oppression is in your life right now, I want you to kind of 
put that in the back of your head as we talk through these because James is going to walk us through patience and suffering. And as a believer, we say this. We say, God's sovereign. We say that all the time. But really, what's challenging is, do you believe that he's sovereign? Like, how is your life and how are you living to prove to others that God is sovereign, even when you're in the middle of your suffering? So if you will, James 5, uh, verse 7, we're going to start here. And he's going to say this. Excuse me. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. (coughs) Excuse me. He says, be patient, just like a farmer's patient. Essentially, until the coming of the Lord, and he says that for a reason. He says, you need to have patience. Excuse me, Ernie, can you hand me that water right there, please? Swallowing on something right now. I don't know what it is. Thank you, sir. See if we can pass this together. I think we're kind of better. We'll keep going. So he says, you need to have patience in your suffering like a farmer who is patient for the rains. It's up to the coming of the Lord, right? That patience isn't passive, though. That patience is serving a purpose. That patience has endurance. You ever go to the doctor's office, anybody, and they, you sit in the waiting room, and then they call you back to the other room. And then when you're sitting in the other room, you see those footsteps, and you see the, the shadow go by, and then you see them stop, the door jiggles, and then they go away, and you're like, what the heck? Nobody ever been there? I, I hate that game. I always tell my wife whenever I'm with the doctor, it drives me insane because I'm sitting here waiting for someone to come in, and they're never coming. That type of of patience isn't what he's talking about, though. There's things we have to wait on, but this type of patience is enduring. This type of patience, it it kind of goes with perseverance, meaning how are you going to stick with something even when everything's against you in this world? How are you going to stick with God in the midst of this all, of this suffering? And he uses the analogy of the farmer, and one thing that he talks about has some symbolism in it. The first thing is that the farmer patiently waits on the first or the early rains, which means this, when the first rains would come, if you think about where they're actually talking about, James is writing in Jerusalem or outside of Jerusalem, well, the first rain signified that the ground would be soft enough to work, that God would provide something, but you had a part in it all, that you could till the earth and you could till the ground and you could make it ready to plant seeds so that way fruit could come forth. Well, then the second rains essentially meant that through that season that you planted the seed, That fruit is now ripe and it's ready for the harvest. You have to wait on God for that part too because there's two problems here. If you try to do the work instead of waiting on God and you try to till that soil before the rains come and you try to prepare the grounds and make them wet and and produce this fruit, when you plant that seed, it's going to die, it's going to dry up, and you've done all that work and you've said, well, why don't I have a fruit, God? It's because while there's work, we have to understand that it's still God's will and it's still his timing and our work should align with that. But the other side of this is that, is when the late rains come, if you try to pull that fruit or you try to pull that crop too early, what happens? Bitter fruit. Crops aren't well produced. Less yield, right? So again, when you try to do something without God and without waiting on God, something else is going to happen. And now you're in the middle of this circumstance and you're like, well, what the heck, man? You were working all along, right? But working with purpose is different than just working and not doing anything and not getting anything out of it, right? So work, but James also talks about this idea that 
that if we're going to be like a farmer, think about the seed that's, that's happening in the soil, right? So when we talk about suffering, when your back's against the, the wall, when people are bad-mouthing you behind your back for what you believe in, when you're, you're being ripped off in a business deal, whatever suffering you're going through, whatever heartache that is, whatever oppression or injustice that you're going through, you have to understand this. When a seed is planted in the ground, it doesn't spring up right away, does it? No. How many farmers are in here? Man, I am shocked. I thought there was a lot more farmers in here. How many people have a garden? That's way more than first service. Okay. You're, you're from Indiana or you're in Indiana. You need to know how plants and seeds work anyway. So I'm not going to give you too much of a lesson, but I'm just going to say this. When a seed's planted in the soil, there's a process that takes place that you don't see. The seed has to open up. Roots have to go down further, deeper, in the dark. It has to take root. And then the seed's going to open up, and the sprout's going to come forward. But if a farmer waited on rain and, and, and did some work and planted the seed, he would be crazy to think that that seed's going to sprout right away. Just like suffering, we have to understand that sometimes God's going to put something down in the dark. Things are going to take place, but just because you don't see the fruit of it right now doesn't mean he's not working in the midst of that. There might be that period in time in the middle of your suffering where you're like, God, where are you? He's still working. You just have to wait on the process. There's still work in the middle of the process, though. The farmer would be crazy, though, to plant the seed, do all the work, and go, hmm, not coming up. Let me try this again and plant more seeds. That doesn't make sense. But think about this. In the middle of our sufferings, what do we do? God, I know what's supposed to happen right now. I don't see it. I've got to do what I've got to do so I can. We try to do more work than we need to be doing because sometimes you've got to wait. There's still work. There's still a role. God is still sovereign. However, I think we put ourselves in places we shouldn't even be in the first place when we say, I'm not seeing what God's doing right now, so let me make sure I can. The farmer has to wait patiently, and we too are to wait patiently on that seed and the process that's taking place. And we can't forget about that process because it's very important. It's got to take roots in something, right? But understand, James is saying you have to have that kind of patience. That's the kind of patience you have to have in enduring your suffering. Really easy to say. He says, until the coming of the Lord, because it's at hand. At hand meant it was literally this close. You could reach out, you could grab it. So think about this. Put this, you know, frame this. If Jesus, when he was walking on this earth in his ministry, says this, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus said that on earth. He said that before his death. He said that before his resurrection. He said that before his ascension into heaven. James shortly after writes this. If you think about it, James, written in like the late 40s AD, one of the first books of the New Testament, Jesus would have gone through this process of death, resurrection, ascension, roughly AD 33, right? We'll call it 15 years time. If James is writing 15 years after Jesus' death, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, how should that cause us to live 2,000 years later? It's probably a little bit closer than that now. We're waiting on one thing now. We're waiting on Jesus to come again. And whether you believe it, whether you want to accept it, he's coming again. So how do you want to be found? Because James talks about this. Verse 9. Jump into verse 9 real quick. He says this. He says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Jesus is coming, whether you like it or not, and he is the judge. Go back to your suffering in the middle of it, right? We're not sitting there shouting, praising God. It's tough. We're challenged. 
You know, we could shout and praise God, and, and, and like we should, it's still, there's something here, and I don't like it. Context of James. Think of what's happening in this time period. People are being persecuted. People are dying. Stephen is martyred at this point. Paul had been converted. James the Apostle is dead. Peter it almost died. Jews are fleeing Jerusalem for safety. He's writing to a people that are oppressed. So when you're oppressed, think about it. What's our response? This isn't fair. I don't deserve any of this. This shouldn't be happening to me. I'm supposed to be living for God. Nothing should be happening around me. Why is everything around me going awry? And why is everything falling apart? Jesus told you it was going to. And guess what? If you're grumbling in the midst of that suffering, you know what's going to happen? In my mind, I picture it like this. Jesus is going to open up the doors of the courtroom and he's going to say, go ahead and stand trial. Are you ready? Do you want to be found with that kind of heart? Because he says you're going to stand judgment with it. You're going to stand judgment one day. I'm not going to go into that. We're in Revelation. We can let Mike take the rest of that. You're going to stand judgment one day, Jesus being the judge. The circumstances God handed you serve a purpose. We don't see it. So where is your heart in the middle of the suffering? Because you don't want to be found grumbling before the judge. Super convicting. Really easy to say, but I mean, really put yourself in the middle of it all. Nobody said, we're not going to be like, oh yeah, you know what, yeah, it's okay to, to whine and complain and to do these things. It's like, if you believe that, is it? Is it justified? Because we say, oh, well, it's just righteous anger. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's just our own selfish anger. And sometimes we get caught with our heart in a place it never intended to be, and we say we're serving God over here, but when these things happen, this isn't fair though, God. The judge is coming. Are you ready? Because he doesn't want to find you grumbling. He warns us several times. But he goes on in verse 10, and he uses this example of Job. He says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I'm going to kind of put Job here into a condensed lesson so we can uh, picture it as we talk through it. But I do really, really, really encourage you, if you have not read Job, go back and read Job. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of paraphrase as we go along here, but I think it's important that we can see what's happening in Job's life and why James would present, present this in this kind of message. So, at the beginning of Job, there's God having this conversation amongst angels, and Satan rolls up on scene, right? And God says, where did you come from? And he says, well, I've been roaming the earth up and around and on it. It's almost like Satan's looking for something to do. Remember, he'd already been cast out of heaven at this point. He's almost looking like he, he's trying to find trouble or to stir things up. God's first response is, have you not considered my servant Job? Or have you considered my servant Job? He tells Satan, this fallen angel, my servant Job. Why? Because God knows the beginning from the end. He knows the heart of man. He knows where Job is. But this really sets up the whole argument that Satan presents. And at face value, you look at Satan's argument, and I just want to kind of consider what he's saying here. Right? Satan says, here's a man who's upright. He's blessed, right? If we look back at the story of Job, we know all these things. He's wealthy. He's got 10 kids. He's got a wife. He's a priest for his family. He's got a hedge of protection around him. It actually says he was the greatest man in the East. Here's Job, wealthy Job, great life. 
But Satan looks at it and says, but if I took everything from him, he won't worship you anymore. The only reason he worships you right now is because you've blessed everything that he has. But if I took everything from him, he'll curse you. He won't believe in you. What he challenges here, and I want us to consider this, I'm not saying it's right, and I'm not giving the devil an ounce of, of being right here. Where is our faith? Is it in the gifts themselves, or is it in the giver of the gift? Like, think about this. This is convicting. We often serve God and say, I want you to make me holy, and I want you to purify me, God. Make me the best version of me that you could ever do because I want to serve you. I want you to call me my servant. But when God takes the very things that he's given you, is your faith the same? When God strips you of everything, when God puts you in the middle of these sufferings and he allows it, he permits it, is your faith the same? Is it in the giver or is it in the gifts? Because Satan's essentially saying, I'm going to take all those things and I'm going to prove to you that he's not going to be faithful to you. But God, knowing all things, he says, all right, I'll permit you to afflict Job, essentially, but you can't kill Job. You, you do what you got to do around him. Now, what do we know about what happened to Job? Everything was taken from him. Job himself was a lesson to angels, but we can look at Job today and look at this patience and suffering and understand that when everything was from him, because, I mean, look at life. We have things. These are mine. God, you do whatever you want. Don't touch these. Do not. Job was making sacrifices for his family just in case they would ever curse God one day. He was being faithful and interceding on their behalf, but guess what? God took those things. We can go back on the story of what happened to Job. What we have to understand is that God is sovereign through everything that happens in the midst of Job's suffering. So if today, God took everything away from you, if your life changed radically today, if your well-being changed right now, is your faith going to be the same as when you woke up this morning and came to church? You know what I mean? This is really the question we just have to think about. Because if he's going to do it, he's going to do it. And he's going to permit it. He's trying to use you for something. There is a purpose on the other side that we don't see. James is good about talking about. There's this other side of things. Consider it pure joy. We don't know what's on the other side, but don't forget that moment of where God's still working on our behalf. He's trying to make us into something. We have to patiently endure it. So what happens to Job? In one day, he loses his children and all of his wealth. One day. Think about that for a second. If that happened today, 10 children and all of your wealth gone. But we know the story from beginning to end. God's good. He's merciful. He's compassionate. But he takes your whole family one day, right? Your wife curses, tells you to curse God, essentially. You're afflicted with painful sores. Your friends don't even recognize you because there's so many sores in your body and you're so distraught. Well, your friends come on scene and kind of challenge that faith a little bit more. They start speaking to the reasons why Job is going through what he's going through. They say, you're going through this because you are a sinful person. You must have done something wrong to be going through something like this. They start speaking to God, but guess who's been silent this whole time? God. In Job 1 and 2, we see God talking. All the way through, 
God doesn't say anything. It's almost like he looks back and he's just letting all this happen. Why? In Job 38, God speaks up again. You know when God speaks again? When the ignorance of man stops. When we stop trying to justify why God's been doing something and we try to put it in a box and say it has to be for this. When we can sit back and James talks about that, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, tame the tongue. When we can learn to do this and listen to God and believe that he is sovereign in the midst of suffering, we would stop justifying the circumstances around us and just trust that God has a plan greater than this. And I can't see it right now, but I know he's going to bring fruit because I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to be obedient to him. That's that. But, but, where are we in that? Where are we in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our trials, in the middle of our oppression, in the middle of our injustice? That's the same sovereign God. We sing about him. We love him. Everything's taken away from me now, but you know who got the final word in the story of Job? God. Because guess who was silenced? The friends? Job himself. The enemy. And you know who got the final word? God. And you know how he spoke in a whirlwind. When they stop talking and having this dialogue as you read through it, boom, here's God. And if you've read Job through, you know that response he has. He essentially says, why do you speak without knowledge? Like, are you done? And you know what the next paragraph he starts with? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Read through that whole thing. God essentially says, you know nothing, I'm God. So stop trying to justify what's happening. Imagine you're the person speaking into Job, the believer Hey, listen, this is how God does it, man. He's trying to do this in you. He's only doing it because you've probably done this. Meanwhile, God, go back to the beginning. He sits back and he's like, I, I permitted this to happen because I was trying to prove something in him and you're trying to speak for me. God rebukes those friends later. God speaks and what it does is it silences Job. He puts his hand over his mouth. He essentially is like, I shouldn't speak anymore. I'm done. God talks a little bit, and Job realizes this. Through all that affliction from losing everything, being stripped of everything, God spoke, and Job realized something. He's sovereign. He sits on the throne. In the middle of that suffering, Job admitted, if you read that, condense that passage of Scripture, he essentially is just like, you're right. I wasn't there when you laid the foundations of the earth. You are sovereign, and I'm not. You're God, and I'm just a lowly human being. But until that realization happened, the story of Job would have continued. But once he professed God to be sovereign, you know what happened? It wasn't like God said, great job, Job. Here's your sticker. Here's your reward. Job, you did awesome. That's exactly what I needed. God doesn't say anything. He just blesses him double what he had before. And what's crazy in that? The enemy said, I'm going to take all of these things from him, and I'm going to prove that he won't worship you. God, through all of that, doubles that. He got the final word because he silenced the enemy. He used Satan himself to prove a lesson. It's almost like I say this. He shoved it back in his face, and he was like, see what you tried to do? Guess what? He's getting double now. Guess what? You tried to afflict Job. Guess what? He's actually better now. Guess what? Job's actually more faithful now. You know what? He's my servant, and he said it from the beginning. My servant. So think about all the things that you've been going through in life, the affliction, the oppression, the injustice, whatever it is in your life. When society comes against you for believing in Jesus Christ, whatever that is in your, in your life right now, when you're in the middle of it, if you have something to say, 
You better make sure it's the right thing to say to God. It's, not, it's okay to say, God, I am angry right now. I don't understand this. It's okay to communicate how you feel with God. It's not okay to curse him. It's not okay to do those things because on the other side of all of this, there's something to come. There's a reward to come. And he says, you need to be patient in the middle of your sufferings. So where are you in the midst of that suffering? Because Job proves God, proves Satan wrong, really, through his faith. Job sits back and he says, it wasn't about just loving the things around me. Yeah, they meant something to me. Yeah, it's going to take something from me. But I still trust God's sovereign. I have to believe that while I have a blessed life here and when I have nothing here. And that's the same God who gives me the blessed life to start, who takes everything away and then gives everything back double. He is the same God, but my circumstances are different. James says, have that steadfastness of Job. But he says this, you know the beginning and the end of Job. So we can say God is merciful. He's compassionate. Do you think Job said God's merciful and compassionate in the middle of his affliction? Read it. He's angry. He's confused. He's, I mean, you, you name it. Put yourself in those shoes, whatever you're going through. Do you feel like that? But let me tell you something, he is. So how do we remember that? Because he's sovereign. He still sits on the throne in the midst of your trials, just like he does in a victory or a miracle or something that's worthy of all the, all the praise. He's the same God, even though your circumstances change. And I, I mean, go back to what happened. Job has everything, loses everything, now has double. He's good and he's compassionate, right? How, 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 how? God is good and compassionate to Job because he had a purpose through his suffering. He's good and he's compassionate to Job because he had his hand sustaining Job the entire time. He's good and he's compassionate to Job because he blessed him beyond what he could ever imagine. He's good and he's compassionate to Job because he used Satan himself to prove a lesson and to bless a man and make him worth more than he was before, more than he could ever imagine. But where are we at in the middle? Are we saying the same things? Are we like Job's friends who are going to tell you, hey, I just want you to know, I know you're afflicted, but God's good. He's merciful and he's compassionate, even when we don't see it. Because what good is it going to do to tell someone in the middle other than just to be with them? Be with them till the end. Praise God with them at the end. Job's story is used for us today to understand, and James uses this to, for us to understand how God can be good, how, can he can, how he can be compassionate and merciful to us. But then as I was reading and studying James, we go to verse 12. I was like, well, this is an afterthought. What do you mean don't swear? So I'll read verse 12 and we'll talk about this. But he says, above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Where's my mouse at? Why would Jesus say this in the Sermon of the Mount? Why would James echo this now? What does this have to do with patience and suffering? Go back to the beginning, the commandments. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. It had to do with swearing. Jesus goes on the Sermon on the Mount and says, do not take an oath either by heaven or by earth because heaven is God's and the earth is his footstool. Hmm, conflict here. 
We see evidence of oaths in the Bible. So why would Jesus say, don't make one? Why would James reiterate the idea? And how does that even matter to patience and suffering? Because this. When we make an oath, just like the Pharisees would, just because you're not using the Lord's name behind it, think about what's on the promise of the oath itself. So framing it, Pharisees wouldn't take God's name in vain, but they would take other things and say, I swear by these things, essentially saying, I'm not bound by this oath, but if God's at the center of it, I'm bound by it. If God said it, I have to do it, but because I'm making this, I can just go on my word. It's like doing this behind your back. I'm not, I'm not having to commit to anything over here, but, right, that's what the oaths were, and that's what was happening with the Pharisees, and Jesus says, don't do it anymore. Why? Because it has to do with your character. The only reason, think about the suffering right now, the only reason you make a promise to God, God, I promise you that if you just don't touch these things in my life, if you take everything else from me, I will be more faithful to you. God, if you just move right now and you take me out of this suffering, I will serve you with everything I have. God, I will be a witness to all these people. I promise you, if you would just. God doesn't want your promise. He doesn't need it. He gave you one already. The problem with promising God something and trying to make an oath is that you don't have enough character to back it up. The promise that you're talking about says, I will do this if you would just do this, God, like he owes us something. Flip that. The only reason anybody makes a promise today is because they don't have enough action to back it up. I promise I'll become better means you probably just did something wrong and you need to change. The whole reason he says this and reiterates what Jesus said is because in the midst of our suffering, we don't like it. It's the other side of the coin. It's like, I don't want to be a part of this at all. And you know what, God? If you do it, I will. If you do, God, I will. I promise. Like, think about that. Your faith now becomes contingent on God doing something like that in your life when he doesn't even need it in the first place. You're letting your faith deepen and grow by saying, God, only if you do this will I grow. Guess what? You say these are my things, guess whose things they really are? God's. What happens when he takes these things from you? Where's your faith? You go back on your oath because you said, I promise if you do this, but he takes those things, now where are you? You've gone back on your own promise because God took those very things from you. He can do all things. In the midst of our pain, in the midst of our suffering, in the middle of whatever trials it is, in your life, God's going to show you something. And he doesn't need your promise to make it. That's why he brings up this whole idea. If you would just say yes and no, you would have enough character to back it up. And the whole reason that matters is because he doesn't want you to fall under what? Condemnation. Condemnation, meaning you're going to stand judgment for that character flaw. He knows your heart. He's saying the only reason you were ever going to change is if I did this for you, you weren't going to change for anything. Why would you change if that's the only reason you're going to change? What does James hit home? James hit home a lot. We're selfish. I want God. I desire God. I need God. If you do, God, I will. We make everything contingent upon God, do, God doing the work and not us. Right? So I'm going to invite the worship team up, and I want to talk about, uh, I was trying to wrap this up and think about, well, what does this really mean for us all? And really, we say you have patience in the midst of your suffering. We say it over and over. 
So what if I'm not patient? Well, we read, he says, lest you not fall into condemnation. If I am patient, what's to come? Because we know there's the crown of life to come. The other side, things are to come. We read what's happening to Job. Maybe something happens on earth, but ultimately you have something for eternity that you would never have. If God's going to test your faith, if he's going to grow you, he's going to do it. Nobody wants to admit that that's what they need to go through, though. Is God sovereign in the middle of my sufferings? How are we living it and showing other people this? Because understand the process of, of purifying gold, right? Go back into Peter. He talks about suffering a lot. The process of purifying gold meant you took an ore or a rock with metal, precious metal inside of it, and you melted it. You brought it to its melting point. You extracted the metal from it through this fire, through this process, and you start skimming off what they call dross or the impurities from the rock so that you can have a pure piece of gold. In the middle of your suffering, God's going to take you from one state and he's got to put you into another. And the only way you can go through it is when he tries you and he removes things from you and he removes the impurities from your life. And if you want to be faithful and you want to be found pure and complete and blameless like James talks about, he's got to take something from you. It doesn't necessarily mean people, but maybe he does. It doesn't necessarily mean monetary things, but maybe it does. Maybe it's something with our own pride or our own ego. So what's God showing us in the midst of our sufferings that we need to let go of so that he can really purify us? And how are we being stewards and obedient to what he's trying to remove? Because God is sovereign here and he's sovereign here and we have to believe that no matter what. As I was writing this message, I've always said whenever I'm talking about James, something comes up. And I thought it was just going to be the correlation between this whole judgment piece and we're in Revelation and how that all worked out. But Friday I was rereading through Job just to kind of, you know, study a little more, look into it. And I'm sitting at home and I'm on my laptop and I hear my wife scream and she goes, Doug, it's in the road. And if you know Doug, our pug, he's always in the road because he's pretentious and he's spoiled. And so I hear a scream and I'm like, okay, whatever, just get out of the road, Doug. Okay, we do this all the time. And then I hear a shriek, not from my dog, but from my wife. And I know this is a trivial matter, but just bear with me because I want you to understand this. I hear my wife scream, Doug's dead, and she brings the dead dog to the front door of our house. This dog's been with us for eight years. He's been with her while I was gone on deployments. They were emotionally really connected. I know there's a difference between dog and humans. Some people will argue with me, see me after service, but I understand that he still meant something to someone, and he played a role in our, in our family, and now there's a void. And I remember, I'm reading about Job, and it says, the first thing God did is he takes his wealth from him, his livestock, and I'm like, animals, boom, my dog's dead. I'm like, ooh. And I get outside, and I look into my wife's eyes, and I get down on my knees, and she is a mess. If she's hearing this right now, wherever she is, you probably hear her crying. She's an absolute mess. And in my head, you know what I'm saying to myself? God's good, he's merciful, he's compassionate. God, he's good, he's merciful, and he's compassionate. How can I give him glory? Because that's all, what all our sufferings are meant to do in life. It's to bring God glory. Where's the glory right there? When I'm looking my wife in her crying eyes, and I've never heard her cry like that in a very long time. I'm like, God, I don't know what you gotta do. And I'm not saying I had the perfect response, but I had like a little come to Jesus moment with it. So my daughter, if you know her, she's three and she's curious. 
She has a little stool in our house, and she likes to wash her hands and help us cook and make eggs and do all things with her stool. My three-year-old daughter puts a stool in front of the door, and she's looking out through the window like this. And my wife's holding a dead, bloody dog. And I'm trying to comfort her. And in my head, I'm like, God is good. He's merciful. He's compassionate. God, I need to use this for your glory. And I don't know what to say right now. So I told my wife, I've got to go in and I've got to talk with Ren. I've got to go tell her. I'm not going to lie to her. <laughs> I open the door and Ren goes, Daddy, Dougie's dead, isn't he? And I'm like, yes. And I'm like, God, what am I going to say to her? How do you justify this to someone? She doesn't really know, but she knows. She sees my wife crying. She says, Daddy, I'm sad. And I was like, oof, Okay. So I got both my girls in my house who were down, and my three-year-old telling me she's sad. So I get down on my knees, and I look at her, and I'm like, Rennie, you know why you're sad? You're sad because you loved him, and you had a heart for him, and you know what? You get to remember Doug forever. I said, but you know what's even greater than that, Ren? Is that when you love someone that much in your heart, you'll tell them about Jesus too, because they'll never die. And you'll get to show them forever, and they'll be in eternity with you forever. And I'm like, oh, geez, like I just kind of just used my dog's death. My wife's literally still outside bawling in a mess, holding the dog. And I'm telling my daughter this, and I'm like, God, you get the glory. I'm going to teach my daughter that even in the midst of death, that that feeling she has in her stomach and in her heart, I want her to share that with other people because I know she doesn't want to lose people. I don't want to lose people. None of us want to lose anyone close to us. But if we believe that and it mattered that much, we would share who Jesus is even in the midst of our suffering. So how is God good? How is he merciful? And how is he compassionate? I get to talk with my daughter in the middle of this trial because I'm not staring at my wife's crying eyes and I'm not telling her that right now, but I'm still trying to bring glory to God. We've had conversations about this, but think about this. If, I, like, if you talk to my wife, she's going to break down today. If you say anything about the dog, everything, you know, feeding one dog now, not feeding two, all those things come up. She believes it, but she's struggling. But I also got a phone call the next day from a friend whose grandfather was having a stroke or had a stroke. He just lost his dad in January. And he's like, dude, why is it when you talk about James something happens? And I'm like, well, what's going on? He's like, so I get a phone call. This was yesterday. He goes, I get a phone call that my grandfather had a stroke. You know what his response was? He said, he asked his wife and another volunteer while they were here decorating for children's ministry. He says, can we pray? His sister was in a different location, got on her knees and prayed. Their response was different. God, why would you allow this to happen again in our lives? When he got to his grandfather's house, the ambulance was there, sitting outside. He walks in, grandpa's sitting in the chair. He's fine. He's like, didn't you have a stroke? Grandpa gets up, walks himself to the bathroom, says, I'm fine, walks himself to the ambulance, goes to the hospital. They do tests on him. We know you had a stroke, but we can't find anything. Nothing related to a stroke is wrong with you. You had one, but we don't see it. A miracle takes place. When I'm looking into my wife's eyes and I know she's in pain, and I'm like, God, you're good, you're merciful, you're compassionate. It's the same God who's healing someone who just had a stroke. Even though I'm in, a, my wife, she's in a pit with something happening in life. 
and there's a testing, somebody's over here praising God. And you know what? The same God on the same throne. Do you believe that? That's what I want us all to think about. Somebody right now is going through something that you pray to never go through. Somebody else is witnessing a miracle and praising God because he's sovereign. He's not different in your life than he is in your life, than he is in your life, than he is in your life. He's the same God that we all serve. And when life is different, you know what? Sing a little louder. God deserves all the glory in anything. In the midst of our suffering, James says, patiently endure this. I know you're not going to see that seed come up right now. But don't forget what God's doing in the dark right now. Because he's always working. And there's something happening on your behalf. I need your obedience. I need your faith. And I need you to prove to other people that I am sovereign. So we stand so I can pray for you. Good, merciful, compassionate, sovereign God. You get the glory. You get all the glory, Lord. I pray that we can consider our trials pure joy, Lord. I pray that we can have patience in the midst of our suffering. I pray that we don't manifest things on our own, that we wait on you, but we do the work that you're calling us to, Lord. Let us be called your servants. Let us not grumble, Lord. Let us trust in your promises. We can't keep our own, God. You're the promise keeper. You are the light in our darkness, Lord. And I just pray for every single person in here that as you refine our, our lives, that you, as you purify us, that we, we be cognizant and aware that we need to show others who you are and that you are sovereign, Lord. We don't know the answers to everything, God, but we trust in you. We don't wait on the why to believe in you, God. We believe in you now. We believe in you forever. And let our faith have the endurance to continue on to the coming of the Lord. Until you come again, almighty God, we pray that you would call us your servants, that we would be found faithful, Lord. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. With all
in the middle of the suffering, have patience. But never forget that God's on the throne through it all. So in the middle of your suffering, sing a little louder this week. Show other people who God is because he's the same God in the mountain as he is in the valley. We want to be the light and the salt to the earth so we can share who Jesus is for others. So whatever you're going through, patiently endure your sufferings because there's something coming and we're living for him. So let that encourage you this week. We thank you for being here with us as well. We look forward to seeing you again next week. We love you all. God bless. We got a little bit more if you want to sing with us. We're going to raise this hallelujah one more time. And I'm going to sing in the middle of the storm. Louder and louder. going to hear my praises roar from the ashes. Hope will arise. Death is defeated. The King is alive. Thank you guys for being with us this weekend. Go in peace.